Good morning. Today our scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 92. You can find it on page 498 in your Black Pew Bible. Psalm chapter 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Hey, if you are new, if it's your first Sunday, if you've been gone for a little bit because the summer and summer schedules are chaotic, we've been spending the month of July uh, looking at a few different psalms. That's kind of our typical summer rhythm. We go back to the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle of the Old Testament. It's a book of poetry, hymns, praise written uh, to God by people in ancient Israel. Uh, and we keep circling kind of in and out year after year to see what they have. The great thing about the Psalms is it's a really big book. There are 150 of them. It would be pretty impossible for us to just preach, you know, all the way through it. But there is uh, gold in there that we're looking for. You can go to the Psalms to find expression for really anything that you are going through in life. If you are sad, burnt out, tired, the Psalms have expression for how you relate to God in the middle of that. Where is God when things are falling apart? The Psalms give voice to people in that situation. If you are rejoicing and things are going really well for you, the Psalms can give you language to express that joy in a way that is directed towards God, recognizing the reality of who he is. And what we've been trying to focus on over the last few weeks are Psalms that teach us gratitude and thanksgiving. Gratitude can be a really abstract kind of concept, right? What is it? it, it may, is it a feeling? It's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for, for this. Gratitude biblically always has an object. Um, it is gratitude to God. It is looking at the ways that God has moved and worked in the world and in our lives and then responding accordingly. And the, the, the good thing for us to spend some time in this is that does not often come naturally to many of us. We think that in order for it to be like really authentic gratitude, it should just kind of spontaneously erupt and like, oh my goodness, I'm feeling grateful, I'm feeling thankful. But the Bible shows us that gratitude, thanksgiving, is something that we cultivate. We don't manufacture it. Everything is a gift of grace, is a gift of God, but it takes work. 
gardens don't produce fruit uh, just naturally. Weeds grow up, sun shines. Uh, it needs cultivating to bear fruit. Your room probably does not just magically clean itself. You have to uh, go in and clean your room uh, to make sure that it's clean. Our hearts work in the same way. Uh, we do not drift into joy. We do not drift into gratitude. We need, through the grace of God, to cultivate practices of gratitude in our lives. And in the Bible, there are all sorts of promises about what a life of gratitude can produce. We see it in this chapter. It produces joy, longevity, flourishing, uh, living in the presence of God by his grace forever as part of his family. But there are also real warnings about the consequences of failing to grab hold of the grace of God and cultivate a grateful heart. Psalm 95 says if, if we don't do that, if we don't align our lives and our hearts and our practices with the grace of God, the reality of who he is, we actually miss out on the deep soul level rest that he has to offer. So what I want to talk about more today from Psalm 92 is the relationship between rest and gratitude because resting in God is the goal of gratitude, finding rest, which I assume, here's an assumption that I'm making about most of you guys. I assume most of you guys feel really busy. I assume most of you guys feel really tired. I assume most of you guys are looking for something that will actually refresh you, that will actually bring rest to you. But we don't really know how to find it, right? We take the night off, we watch Netflix, we chill out for a day, and then the next day we still feel just as worn out and tired as we did before. Gratitude, though, is the path to finding real, lasting soul rest in God. So why? Why do we cultivate gratitude? Why do we cultivate thanksgiving? Not for its own sake. Not so we can brag about how grateful we are. Not so we can achieve some kind of self-actualization or some kind of uh, emotional health. The goal of gratitude is to know, experience, and live with God more deeply. So Psalm 92 is a Sabbath psalm. You can see that in its title. If you uh, close your Bibles, go ahead and open them back up again. At the very top of the chapter in my Bible, uh, there is a heading. It's in a different font, and it says, Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. That means that this song was uh, used on the Sabbath day in worship by the Jewish people throughout history. And what it does is helps us to see the relationship between Sabbath rest and gratitude, rightly responding to God for all the ways that we have seen him work in our lives. And so what I want to do today is not just kind of uh, walk through the psalm, psalm uh, sequentially. I, I kind of want to approach it from three different angles. Because all good songs, which this is a song, are rooted in a story. And there is a story at the heart of this psalm about an experience or a time in the psalmist's life where he was struggling deeply. So I want to talk about the story at the heart of the psalm. I want to talk about the song written in response to the story. And then it's not just um, a song to listen to. It actually teaches us a lesson. It has a goal. So I want to look at the story, the song, and the lesson today. Attack it from kind of three angles. Let's jump in and see the story. So like I said, 
Psalms are poems. They are songs. And if we look closely, we see that this psalm is autobiographical. There is a time in this person's life, whoever wrote it, we don't know who wrote it, uh, where he was deeply struggling, deeply, deeply struggling. And then on the other end of that struggle, he had some kind of experience with the grace, power, restorative mercy of God that changed his life forever. And so this psalm begins, as we've already seen, with the fact that it is a song for the Sabbath. What is Sabbath? It comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which just means to stop. Uh, Stop working, stop worrying, stop planning, just stop and rest. It flows from this picture of God in Genesis chapter one, who works for six days, he creates the world, he brings all of it into existence, and then on the seventh day, he rests. He stops what he's doing, and he just rests, appreciating the beauty of everything that he just made. And God sets that pattern into uh, humanity and history and says, hey, six days, you're working on the seventh day, you're gonna enter into this Sabbath rest, this way of living in appreciation and gratitude before God, trusting that he's the one who's going to do all the work and all we have to do uh, is show up and experience his power. So by the time this Psalm was written, The Sabbath is a day of worship, rest, and reflecting on the works of God. And that's exactly what we see happening in this song. Uh, when When we do that, when we slow down and actually stop, what it does is open up margin and capacity to reflect on the grace of God right? Uh, Again, another assumption. I assume that most of us are so busy that we feel like we're just kind of running from thing to thing to thing or place to place to place. Even if we don't have that much on the calendar, it seems like inside of us, we're always racing. We're always looking for something to do. We're always looking for something to fill the time. And the problem is when we live our lives by busyness, just running from thing to thing to thing, we often miss out on the space or opportunity to actually see and reflect how God has worked in our lives. And so the psalmist is on a Sabbath resting and he's looking and reflecting on his life and seeing the ways that God has worked in his. And we don't know exactly what was going on. The Psalms bring us into situations with just enough detail where we can resonate with that. It's like, oh yeah, I kind of know how that feels. I kind of know what they're talking about. But there's not so much detail that it makes it uh, irrelevant for us. So all we know about the author is that he is now in a place where he can talk about the goodness of giving thanks to the Lord, but it was not always that way. We see that he's telling the story of a time in his life when he was actually exhausted, burnt out, cynical, and probably wondering whether it actually is good to praise the Lord. You're saying, okay, where where do you get all of that? Look at verse seven. Verse seven, uh, the psalmist talks about the wicked. He says, "The, the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish. So he's using this image of grass, flowers, vegetation that grow up really quick, really quickly. Israel is a dry land. There's not much that grows there naturally. There's not much that can uh, sustain life there. But during the rainy season, when the rains come, it transforms the desert from a dry, barren, dusty place into all of a sudden it is just covered in lush grass, flowers, plants, shrubs. It pops up really quickly, almost, almost overnight when the rains come, uh, and just covers everything. And so the author is really struggling 
because he looks out in the world and he sees wicked people who are flourishing just like the grass is flourishing and covering everything. Like the, the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish. He cannot understand how that reality can be true if God is actually good and just the way that he says he is. And maybe you resonate with that. Maybe you have found yourself in a place in your life where you um, dread going back to school because you know the people who are at school and run the place, and they don't have your best interests at heart. Like, they, they are out to get you. There are bullies, and you know, we've, we've all probably had to deal with that at one time in your life or another. Maybe you are uh, getting ready to go back to school in a couple weeks, and you know that something is waiting for you that you are not looking, uh, looking forward to. Why does that happen? Why do those people seem to do so well? Why do the people who hurt you, like you, you were really hurt by them and they seem to be doing great. They are not bearing the consequences for what they did. You are, you're carrying that. You, you know exactly what it feels like uh, to see the wicked flourish and prosper and seem to just get away with whatever they want to. And if that's you, you know how exhausting it can be to deal with that and that is exactly where the psalmist finds himself. He's exhausted, beat down, and unsure whether he has the strength to go on. His enemies are strong and they will not stop coming after him. But then something happens to him. He has an experience with God that reorients his entire life. Look down at verse 10. So all that, uh, the wicked sprout like grass, all evildoers flourish. Skip a couple verses because it's more helpful for me in my, the way I structure my sermon. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. And so his testimony is, in that place of exhaustion, God met him and elevated him and gave him strength that he did not possess inside of his, himself. That's what it means when he says you, not, not me, I didn't, I didn't pull myself out of this situation by a strategy or my brains or my smarts. You, God, have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Uh, a horn on a wild ox is its strength. It's how it protects itself. It's how it um, makes sure that uh, it's okay. It's protected from enemies. The strength and defense of an ox is in its horns. The King James Version says, uh, you've exalted my horn like the horn of a unicorn. And I really like that. I wish that this one said it, but it doesn't because unicorns don't exist. Sorry, guys. Um, so you've, you, you've, you've strengthened me. You've strengthened me in a way that's beyond normal human capacity. And not only that, you have covered me in olive, in fresh oil. You've poured over me fresh oil. Uh, God uses oil in the Bible uh, to anoint people, to consecrate them, to set them apart. But not only that, uh, oil was used to bind up and heal wounds. So you have a uh, two-part action of God. God is coming to this person who is weak, who is beaten down, who is exhausted, and he gives strength, and he also brings healing, which completely reorients the way that the psalmist goes and navigates through life. So putting it all together, we see Psalm 92 is a testimony of a person who is nearing the end of their strength. 
They're barely holding on. They've, and then they experience the saving power of God. And on the other side of that story, the psalmist decided to record it in a song. So let's look at Psalm 92 from the angle of a song now. We had to read pretty closely to kind of determine what, what the story is at the heart of the psalm. It's way easier to see how it is a song because this entire chapter is a celebration of the goodness of God and an invitation to do what the psalmist is doing and praise the Lord for the ways that you have seen him work in your life. Look down with me at verse one. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. So it starts out with a statement, with a claim. It is a good thing to give thanks to the Lord. It is a good thing to do what we have done this morning and actually opening up your mouth, lifting your voice and declaring to God who he is and what he has done. Um, the problem is we, a lot of times we don't really know what it means for something to be good, right? Because a lot of times the way that we think about goodness comes down to personal preference a lot. Let me give you an example. A tension point in my marriage is the fact that I really like to cook steak. And my wife really does not like it when I cook steak. She really doesn't like it. She doesn't like it uh, because it makes the entire house smell like meat. It fills it with smoke because sometimes I, you know, Sometimes I make it real smoky. Um, she doesn't like the grocery bill that comes with it. And she, you know, she, she, uh, she, she does not think that cooking steak is a good thing the way that I think cooking steak is a good thing. And we all have things like that in our life, right? I think this song is good, you don't like this song. I think this movie is great, you don't like it. I think this food is amazing and you don't like it. You don't think it's good. But goodness, real goodness, doesn't actually just boil down to personal preference. The psalmist is not saying that he thinks it's a good thing for him to give thanks to the Lord. Uh, but for you, maybe that's not your thing, so maybe it's not actually a good thing. No, he, he's saying that there are things in this life that are actually objectively, intrinsically good in and of itself. It is a good thing in and of itself to give thanks to God. It is good because it aligns with who God is. It's good because it's the right response to who he is and what he's done. It is good because it makes us into a kind of person who is resilient and strong and rooted and grounded in the grace of God. So it is a good thing to give praise to God, just like it is a good thing in and of itself to love another person selflessly. That's not a subjective good. That, no, it's, it, why is it good to love another person selflessly? Well, it's, it's good. It's just good to do that. It's good to be a person of your word and to live with integrity. Why? Well, it's, it's just, it's good. That's the way that the world is set up. In the same way, it is good to worship God, to sing to him, and to give thanks to him. Uh, let, let me take uh, just a second here to talk about something. Um, I, I, I wanna talk about 
our relationship to music and feelings uh, because I have, I have some friends in my life, maybe you guys uh, have struggled with this, maybe you guys have friends who think through this, who, you know, they grew up in church and they loved like worshiping in youth group. You know, they loved the feeling of kind of being part of something bigger than yourself, of experiencing the presence and power of God uh, as we all sing together. And then they went to a Coldplay concert and they realized, oh, I felt the same way at that Coldplay concert as I do in, uh, in the worship service. So wait, does that mean that God actually isn't in this, but I'm just fooling myself with some kind of abstract feeling uh, when I sing and worship to God? I've, I've had people that know that um, it really rocks their faith when they try to think through, why do I feel the same way at a big concert as I do um, in a church when I'm singing worship to God? And what I wanna say to that is, if it's a good thing to lift your voice and sing, if God is the author of life and music and joy and celebration and community, it means that there is inherent power in music. It means that there is inherent power to lift us up beyond our situation, where we actually are in the moment, and to be brought to another place when we sing, when we participate in something that is bigger. So what I want to say is, hey, that feeling that you're feeling at the Coldplay concert is actually pointing you to something else. It's pointing you to the God who made music, who made song, the, to the God who created this world full of life and beauty and goodness and vibrance. And he's inviting you to find full expression of that joy in him and by giving thanks to him. So an essential aspect of gratitude of living a, right, uh, a life in right response to God is doing what we've, we've done already this morning coming together, lifting our voices before the Lord in song, actively bringing to mind all the ways that you've seen him work and learning to see the world in a way that lines up with the reality of who God is. And that's the point of this song. That's the goal that whoever wrote this psalm has. He wants you not just to hear about a story that he had in his, his life, not just to um, think, okay, that's cool, that's a, that's a cool song. He wants you to align your life with the reality of who God is through his grace and be caught up in the same kind of worship that he knows. And so there is a lesson at the heart of this song. And the lesson is this. In a world that values grass, be a tree. In a world that values grass, be a tree. What does that mean? Uh, let's, let's go back to the original point of tension that the psalmist was feeling. The wicked are flourishing. The wicked are springing up like grass all over the place. They're growing. Like they're everywhere and they look really good and they look like they're having a really good time. So what do we, what do, we do about that? Well, look, look what the psalmist actually has to say about that. Look at, look at verse um, six through eight, starting five actually. So how great are your works, O Lord? Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. And also parents, I'm sorry, I chose the only psalm in the Bible that has that word in it, but we're just gonna roll in it. Kids, if your parents tell you not to say that word, just listen to them, okay? All right, he, he cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. The psalmist 
in finding himself on the other side of being a recipient of God's grace and looking at the works of God and being reoriented and seeing the world the way that God sees the world realizes something that he missed before when he was struggling. And the, the, the thing he missed is this, grass in the desert doesn't last. It can't last. It has no root. When the rains come, it's, it's doing fine. But as soon as the rain dries up and as soon as the sun starts shining, it doesn't last. It just withers. It just fades away. It just shrinks and shrivels inside in, in the light of the sun. But there is, there's something inside of us, all of us, that misses that. Because we see the flash, we see the growth, we see the flourishing, but we don't see the end that trying to find a, last, uh, a life of lasting permanence and rootedness cannot happen if you're trying to grow grass in the middle of a desert without water. It just, there, it, it doesn't work. It goes against the grain of the universe. And I like what one author said, when you go against the grain of the universe, you're gonna get splinters. It doesn't work it falls apart. And he calls people who fixate on wanting to be like that, on wanting to just grow and flourish quickly apart from the grace of God, um, stupid and foolish. A better translation of that word might be uh, brutish or animal-like. It's a, it's a word picture of a person who is becoming less human as they try to establish themselves and their life apart from God and becoming more like animals. Their pursuit of pleasure or security or flourishing apart from the God who made everything is literally dehumanizing them. And the fool is a person who refuses to listen to that wisdom and instead insists on going his own way. And that kind of person can only fixate on the quick growth of grass after rain, and they can't see the natural end of it. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't last. It has no root. They miss that the natural end of living like this is destruction. And here's the claim. If you try to find a life of flourishing and growth apart from God, it will be as temporary as grass in the desert. For a little while, it might look beautiful, it might look like you have figured it out, but as soon as the sun beats down, the root cannot, uh, cannot sustain you. Now here's the deal. That, we're all born into that way of living. We are all born like grass. We don't have the root system within ourselves to sustain ourselves. We need something or someone outside of ourselves to give us real flourishing and real stability. But the tragedy of, of humanity is we've been trying to do that apart from the grace and mercy of God for, for, for as long as we've been around. We've tried to do it our own way, and our own way always, always ends in withering and destruction. We need something else outside of us to root us and plant us. And that's where the contrast comes in. The contrast between living like grass and being rooted and planted as a tree forever. And this growth, this uh, image that we see of, of, of trees at the end of the psalm 
comes from the reality, uh, this kind of central reality in this psalm, which is verse 8. The contrast between the wicked who are sprouting up like grass, um, but they're doing destruction forever. But you, central claim of this psalm, O Lord, are on high forever. We pass away. We don't have what's in it. We don't have what we need inside of ourselves. But the Lord is on high forever. He always is flourishing. He always is secure. He always is full of life. And he always is eager to come and show grace and mercy and give his strength to those who are in need, which, praise God, is all of us right here. And so the promise at the end of this psalm is that there is a different way of living. It's not a way that we achieve. It's not a technique. It's not a method where we can uh, somehow magically transform ourselves from grass with no roots into a giant tree. The good news is that in Christ, you already are a tree. You already are rooted and planted and established. Look down at verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare, this is the point, this is the purpose, that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Commentators will say that these verses are an image of what a life full of Sabbath rest looks like. It looks like flourishing. It looks like real rootedness and stability. Do you see the contrast between grass and trees? Cedar trees in Lebanon uh, were famous uh, throughout all the ancient world because of their strength, because of their size, because of their beauty. But here's the thing about them. They grow really slowly, really, really slowly. It takes them 30 years before they even sprout flowers for the first time, let alone start to uh, produce pine cones and more life. But they're incredibly resilient. Their roots go really, really deep. And they can live for over a thousand years. So there's this contrast between grass fades when, when the sun shines and these trees that are able to withstand whatever comes against them. They're famous for their resilience. Palm trees were often found in uh, an in, in oasis. So if you're a weary traveler going through the desert, a palm tree is really good news. It's a really good sight to see because it's gonna give you shade, it's gonna give you fruit, uh, there's going to be water close by where you can heal. And so this image that the psalmist is giving us of what a life full of Sabbath rest, participating in the grace of God, being rooted in the grace of God, looks like, it looks like stability. It looks like flourishing. It looks like being able to slowly endure and overcome whatever comes up against it. It looks like being a source of blessing to others through shelter, through provision, through strength. But what's most um, important about these trees isn't, isn't just that, which that's amazing. I, 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 I want to spend a whole sermon talking about verse 14. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green. Like if you want to think about how to live a long life and finishing well, like this, there's so much, like those who are in Christ still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green. The thing about them though, is they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. When your goal of being a tree instead of grass, um, it's, it's not just 
so you'll be able to be able to endure by yourself, whatever is gonna come against you. The goal is that you are always living in the presence of God, brought into his house. This is temple language, by the way. Uh, in the temple, you had images of palm trees, cedar trees. The, the walls were made from cedar. So um, it's saying that those who, through gratitude, through participating in the rest that God has to offer, actually become the temple of God. God dwells in and among and through these people. And I think that's what we're all looking for. I think that we are looking for real stability. I think that we are looking for real flourishing, real purpose, real meaning. Our problem, sin, is that we try to do it all on our own. But we can't, we can't. We have to grab onto the grace of God, hold on to him and say, God, like I need, I need you just like the psalmist needed you to come down, to lift me up, to give me strength. I need you to do that for me. And the promise is that those who by grace hold on to Jesus do become this. This is not a technique. This is not a method for you to become a tree. It is a promise that those who are in Christ are rooted and are established by his grace. And so for us today, here on a Sabbath day of worship, trying to reorient our lives around the grace of God, trying to align ourselves with the way that he is trying to hold on to him, we actually have seen more of how God works than the psalmist had, right? If, if the psalmist can say in verse five, how great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep, we have more reason to say that. Why? Because we've seen the way that God deals with his enemies, We've seen the way that even though all of us try, have tried to establish ourselves and just um, go against the grain of who God is and reject him, he still comes to us. He still comes and he gives his life for us. Literally on the cross, Jesus takes on the destruction of living a life of transience and grass. And he gives us his always eternal, forever Sabbath life. And we hold on to him. We see that he treats his enemies with love and with grace and that even if, the psalm is not saying that your life is just gonna be always easy if you are in Christ. Uh, it is saying that on the other side of suffering and on the other side even of death, there is life and resurrection always. And if that's true, well, that changes the way that we navigate through this life, whatever it is that we're facing. And so that's why we're here. We're here to hold on to the grace of God. We're here to find the rest that he has to offer us. And we're here to say, uh, Lord, I do not have what it takes. I need your grace. And so that's why we end with communion every single week at this church. Because by coming to the Lord's table, we are actually practicing gratitude. We are grabbing onto the grace of God. Uh, you, don't, you don't grab onto the grace of God by tearing off a piece of the bread. Like that's, that's not doing it. No, it's, that is a reflection of what our hearts are doing and saying, yes, Lord, I need you. I need your grace. I need you to sustain me. And I believe that you have all the grace and all the strength that I need to make it through this life. So communion at Redeemer is open to all of those who claim the name of Jesus, who put their faith in him. And the way that we practice it is that uh, we'll have 
a few stations throughout the room. We'll have three down here and then one up in the balcony. Uh, the one up in the balcony and the two down in the front will be a loaf of bread and we have a cup of wine and juice. The wine is in the stoneware. The juice is in the glass. Uh, and if you're not sure or can't remember that, just ask the server and they'll be able to tell you. You'll come to the front, rip off a piece of the bread and dip it in the, dip it in the cup and then you can uh, make your way back to your seat. We'll also have a single serve gluten-free juice station, which will be right down here to my left and your right. There are two cups that you can just uh, take apart uh, in it. If you find yourself like the psalmist, um, really struggling, maybe on the verge of burnout or uh, maybe just needing something, uh, we would love to pray with you. We'll have prayer ministers underneath this window uh, to your right, uh, to my left. And it can be as big or little uh, need as you have. We, we would love to pray uh, for you. So uh, I'm going to pray uh, for us. Uh, we will uh, finish the service by doing what the psalmist says is good and giving thanks to God uh, through sacrament and through song. So will you pray with me? And then the band and servers can come forward.